Gary Corrin is a friend and a fellow enthusiast when it comes to storytelling in business. I caught up with him recently to ask him about his work and the way he helps clients to build their brand story. He has some fascinating things to say about the emotional connection brands can develop with their customers, and I think you'll really enjoy this interview. He talks about an unusual experiment on eBay, the psychology behind serving people in a restaurant, and different ways to explain what you did on a stag party. I began by asking him about his backstory and how he found his professional mojo through beer. I'm Andrew Thorpe. Welcome to Leaning Forward. Yes, I was the, the sales manager at the, the City and Hotel in Manchester. Um, so I moved to Manchester from, from Edinburgh in 2011, 2009, something like that. I can't remember now. Um, and it was really, like I said, a, a, a juncture in my life where I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. It was at a bit of a crossroads myself. Uh, in Edinburgh, I was working in a hotel in a similar capacity, but I left that to go back into health and fitness, uh, which I was working in a, in a, in a previous life. Um, but then I saw an opportunity to relocate to the Northwest, and I was a bit disillusioned and bored of the routine, the predictability uh, of, of, of things. And, and whilst I didn't go into any of those roles, not being driven to be successful and work hard, in, in fact, the health club that I worked at, um, it was a, it's a really well-known franchise, um, a premium health club brand. Uh, I was able to take that from 14th in the country to first in under a year, but it never really excited me. Um, and I, I was always in love with music. I think growing up in the 80s and 90s in, in the Northwest meant for some really interesting music genres. Um, and I saw an opportunity to, or, or I had a friend that was a music journalist and he introduced me to an editor uh, and I started to review some some uh, from some live music, um, but in Edinburgh there was just not that much live music. I could have gone across to Glasgow and done a bit, but this was an opportunity with a company that would pay for me to relocate, get back to the northwest where my roots were, and pursue my love of of music writing. And I guess in in some ways, music is a little bit like storytelling in the in, in that it can connect people in a way that stories can do. Sort of. It, you know, helps people release dopamines and dolphins uh, and people bond over live music. You only have to look at festivals and uh, and things like that to see to just see how, how how music and storytelling, I think, quite are quite well linked. So, so my so my um, sort of movement from one arena to another, which coincided with meeting you at um, through Learner Drivers and at that hotel, it involved you very kindly allowing me to help hold meetings in the cafe bar. Um, so we did spend some money in the sense that we all got at least one cup of coffee <laughs> to justify it to the uh, you know to your boss. Um, but you very kindly allowed us to help hold those discussions there, and that was part of helping people to sort of reinvent themselves. That was the early concept of my business. It was helping people to professionally reinvent themselves and find their maybe a new sense of direction, a sense of purpose, and find their mojo because the company was called and still is called Mojo Life. And although, uh, you know, the, the work now that I do through that company is completely different to what it used to be. But you told me a while ago that it didn't really sort of feed your soul what you were doing at the time. 
And it was um, beer in a way that helped you find your sense of purpose and your new direction. So <laughs> explain that one to the listeners, if you wouldn't mind. I know it sounds like I had a really drunken debaucherous evening and, and, and found my own mojo. It was, it wasn't as, um, as, as, as maybe as, as, as fun as that might sound. I, at that crossroads, I saw an opportunity to go and work in the drinks industry um, where I would be taking quite a big financial risk by doing so. I, I, I was going to half my salary, um, but I was just fascinated by, by my baby going to work in a completely different sector that I'd never really worked in before. So I, I went along for the interview and I was successful in there. And my, my job really was to, to sort of set up and build a brand incubation unit um of which they were it was craft beer which at the time craft beer was big in the us but in the uk it was literally just at its its start point it was nothing like it is today um and this major brand didn't really know how to tell the story of those really exciting craft beer brands to uh, the top end of the market that they were trying to get into um so that that was really where i had uh, the real epiphany around how powerful storytelling can be now, when you um, say they, when you say they were struggling to tell their story to to their audience, what what do you mean by that? How would you actually characterise that? It's a good question, uh, and and I wouldn't want to be too critical because this this company's huge, one of the biggest in the world. But I think what they realised was that the approach was very transactional, uh, and how you would expect a salesperson that they're they're, they're accountable for putting beer brands into major uh, UK chains. And so they would they would go and try and talk to a Michelin star chef and they would present themselves. Uh, they would be in a corporate fleece uh, with, with the big brand name on the, on the front of that. And they would then go and try and talk to them about a beer that was brewed with the champagne yeast that was from Alsace and, you know, had all this heritage and, and, and provenance and, and really rich store, tapestry of a story. But they wouldn't get beyond the fact that the, the, the chef would come out and say, you're wearing that fleece. You've got that brand name on there. You've got no right or business to be in here. The perception and the illusion that that created didn't, it didn't align at all. And mm. so they were never able to, to sort of have sit down and talk about how that beer brand being with that, that establishment might, might be a really good call for them. It was, it was fascinating. And that, I think I've mentioned Epiphany. I will never, ever forget the first week in that job uh, it, it, it was the it was the induction that any all com companies should aspire to do. Day one was called the Big Beer Day, uh, and it was exactly what it was. We had I think we had eight or nine different beers in the portfolio, and the whole day was spent literally just drinking them and drinking all of the competitor set around them and looking at all the different ingredients, the brewing, the technique. Um, building up, uh, uh, you know, anecdotes and stories about each of those, uh, which was just incredible to, for me. That's worked in such a corporate world for such a long time to be to be doing something like that. I mean, we started the day with Marmite on toast because it was the the, the guy that was running that. You know, Marmite's a byproduct of brewing, uh, and it was brew, it was it was made locally. So right from the from the get go, we were exposed to these little stories and anecdotes that would help us further down the line. We then proceeded to be taken all over Europe to all the different breweries where we would uh, spend time with the brewer, we would spend time with the locals, we would go to all the local establishments. And, and again, and I don't know how deliberate that was. I think they wanted to immerse us in 
in the story and in those brands and the culture associated with them, I don't think they realise just how powerful that would be when we were retelling some of those stories to, to the people that we were trying to get those brands listed with. And it went from being, hey, would you like to put this beer in your fridge? It's from Alsace, so it's from this part of, 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 of Holland, to let me tell you about when I was in the, um, in, in, in the ancient cellars of this medieval brewery in Bohemia, uh, where we sat in the conditioning tanks with uh, with someone that had worked there for fifty years, it was almost like communist. Um, you, know, you know, communist hadn't even left that part of the world. It was just, it was completely game changing and totally different. And the reaction that I saw from people and the response was just, if someone that comes from a sales background and I've always worked in sales, it was it was the elixir, is maybe the word or the the, the secret sauce that I'd been looking for all, all of that time. Yeah. It was incredible. Well, you, you speak with great enthusiasm and, and emotion in your voice, but I mean, emotion is very much part of the work you do now um, because you, you you left that industry, you've set up on your own and you, you work in a consultative capacity, helping brands to create that more emotional connectional bond with their, with their customers um, so I guess what you've been describing is more sensory. It's more of an emotional um, bond rather than it being a cold transactional thing where it's just an exchange of goods or services for money. Uh, and then we do business and then go our separate ways. That's right. Yeah. Um, so what, what I do now really is to is, is unpick um, a, a, a client's challenges and issues and then and then rebuild them and repackage them around something that really is driving emotional investment i guess is the right way to to, to frame that realizing the power of emotion you know and how how pe- people like to think that they make decisions based on logic because it helps them to feel really comfortable uh, you know you've you've done been duly diligent you've weighed up the facts and the evidence but science has proved that emotion really does drive decision making more than anything and there's so many brands and businesses out there that they realize that, but they just can't take that leap or make the connection because either they're so immersed in it themselves and they don't see it, um, or they just haven't got the creativity or the or the mindset to, to sort of approach the problem in a way that, that, that I've been able to do. So it's um, that that's really in a nutshell what, what I do now. But I think where where we converge with with our work, or certainly overlap, is it's always struck me that marketing and advertising people have understood the power of emotion when it comes to hooking their audience and 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 being persuasive. But I tend not to work with marketing and advertising professionals. I tend to work with people who have to sort of articulate the message, but that's not their main job usually. They're often a, a lawyer, an accountant, a, a technically you know, um, qualified individual. They've trained under a technical discipline, and then they're told to go and bring business in and explain you know, what this brand, what this company is all about. So they're very comfortable with that logical, transactional, uh, factual overview of what the product, the service, or the company is about. But they're not very good at any of that emotive stuff. Which seems to be the, the the preserve of the of the marketing and advertising people who can speak that language. So I I think we we certainly overlap in in our work and and I describe my work as verbal PR because it's those individuals who actually have to articulate 
a lot of the brand messages that people like you will obviously really help people develop because they need to understand their own brand first of all but then obviously people have to start talking about it in a way that's aligned with what you've helped them arrive at yeah and emotions are just so individual and you, you, you can't mass market emotion uh, and i think that's where context is so important when either working with the client and, and, and like you typically the people that i I tend to work most with are, are, are very sales-led and sales-led people tend to be quite transactional. They're, they're pursuing a target, um, you know, they've got a month-end target or a quarterly target to deliver. And the way that they've been trained and the mindset that they have, it's it's almost like a, a production line of meeting stories, meeting stories. And the goal is to convince or persuade someone to to sort of align with your way of thinking. Whereas the way that I approach things is to understand the context. Why should why should what I'm about to tell you matter? Why should you care? Um, and and I, I, I'm at pains to understand and, and truly empathize with, with, with as much authenticity as I can with their, with their genuine pain uh, and understand what the audience uh, really does feel like. Because and it isn't a manipulative way. It comes from 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 a really genuine position for me to want to really understand, and then I can or I'm able to work with that and tell the same story, but alter the context with which I tell that that version of the story. A good example there's um, you, you probably know Gary Vaynerchuk. He talks about context. Gary V. Uh, and he, yeah, he has a really good analogy of context. Uh, I think. Bill Gates talked about uh, content is king. Um, Gary V said that if context is king, if content is king, then context is God. What he meant was, and the way that he talked about it is, is, is the context of telling a story on different social platforms. So if you're not, the, the, the way that people think and behave on Facebook is very different to how people think and behave on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Pinterest. And you have to, you can tell the same version of the story. And his analogy is uh, a stag party. So if I went on a stag party, the version of that story that I told my, my, my partner or my wife would be different to the version of the story that I told my friends, would be very different to the version that I told my grandparents. You know, the, the, I, will, I will take out elements of that story to suit the audience that I'm talking to um, based on maybe levels of appropriateness. Mm. Um, but but you know you you but the, the fact is I still went on the stag party. We still did probably lots of drinking. We did you know there was lots of fun that was had. But I'll just change elements of that story to suit the audience yeah. that I'm talking yeah. to yeah. to make it mean something to them. I think the context thing. I, I was particularly struck by that that word that that I think is prominent in your LinkedIn profile. And you know if you if you were if you if your plane had come down in the desert. And you're walking through the desert for two days and you haven't had any drink. Suddenly a puddle on the ground will, will be very, very valuable to you. Yeah. Um, or, or, or in the, the, the more regular world, if you if you go for a job interview and half an hour before you go for your interview, you, you, you spill coffee on your shirt and tie. Suddenly the availability of a men's retailer in the high street will, will have great significance for you. <laughs> And then yeah. the story gets even more interesting when they're closed for lunch. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a number on the door which you can ring. So then it starts to get really interesting. But I think that's yeah. all about context. It's about understanding the reason why something might be particularly valuable to somebody um, in their current circumstances. Absolutely. 
I agree with that. The um, other thing that I, I, I thought was really interesting in your in your profile, you, you mentioned the 100 significant objects experiment, which I came across a few years ago. I think it's a fascinating story. So just explain that to the to the listeners. Yeah, I think it's incredible. It, it was it was part of a, a study um, that the it, it's really to just to test the effect of narrative on on a, a, an object's subjective value. So, can you measure objectively the subjective value of storytelling? Uh, and so, um, the, the the I forget the name of the guy doing the study. Um, they bought I think they bought two hundred objects. I don't know whether they increased the the size of it because of its success. But on average, they they spent about a dollar dollar twenty five on each object, uh, uh, and then aligned all each of those two hundred objects with two hundred journalists, storytellers, writers, content writers, and they then attached all of those stories with uh, with each of those objects, listed them on eBay to see if attaching a story to it would have make a discernible, measurable difference to the value of those objects to different people. Um, so they they were I think they bought two hundred objects for about. Um, and they sold for about $8,000 in total by the end of it. Uh, My favourite in there was Mario the Felt Mouse, or there was this little felt mouse, and they they named it Mario, uh, and the writer told the story about it being um, something from her childhood, and this this, this mouse was next to the oven where her mum would cook, so she had really fond memories of being able to see the mouse, and her mum would tell her stories about when she was asleep, the mouse would come out and bake uh, these really special cakes. And if you were ever sleepwalking, you could go into the kitchen uh, and you'd, you'd you'd eat these cakes and you'd have the best dreams ever. Uh, and this mouse was that was cost fifty cents, sold for more than sixty dollars. Yeah, uh, which is just it's just it's incredible that 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 can happen just but on you, the basis. I mean, you, but you see it in in movies, don't you? I mean, Will, Wilson the volleyball in uh, in Castaway. Um, yeah. So the, these objects that don't seem to have any intrinsic value, they actually have huge value because of the relationship that people have with them or the circumstances on which they're, you know, they're seen. Um, yeah. the, the, other, the other thing that I, I picked up on was a quote from um, Zig Ziglar. Um, and I know Zig was um, a great hero of Seth Godin's, who, who's one of my marketing heroes. Zig was his uh, mentor in a way. And he talked to, what was it? He said, if you help other people, you'll get everything that you want in life if you help other people get what they want. Yeah, it, it, it help other people get what they want and you'll get what you want. Um, yeah, I think that's that's such a great quote. And I think going back to the beginning, I think if you're doing things with genuine intent and authenticity for people, when I've looked into this, I think it's some quite quite deep psychology, and and as an amateur psychologist, and I love behaviour, and I think that's why I like storytelling so much because of the impact that it can have on people's decision making and their behaviour. There's there's the law of reciprocity. Now come on, Gary. Reciprocity. Reciprocity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Should we do that one again? <laughs> no, let's leave it. <laughs> the law of reciprocity, um, and that, that's again. I, I keep mentioning that word, fascinating, but it's just so true that if if you do something nice for someone, then it will have a deep 
rooted psychological urge for someone to repay and do something nice in return. Mm. Um, and, and, and actually what people tend to do is try and outdo the niceness of the things that you did. And I don't think you can do that without genuine good intent, intent and authenticity. You can't fabricate that sort of stuff. But I think if it's, if it's hardwired into your DNA to, to just want to give people value and to do good things, uh, then then it really can have have an effect. And even something as simple as, and, and it, it burns away, if you buy someone a coffee, um, you know, a friend a coffee if you've been out. Remember those days where you could go out and buy a friend a coffee and you could sit there and chat? Yeah, it's in the dim and distant past, yeah. <laughs> um, it will bother you until the time comes that you're in the same coffee shop and it's you'll remember, even years later, you bought them last time, let me buy them, and, mm. and why don't we have a cake as well? It, it, it's... It's it's just it's it's brilliant that that I think that it's that, um, isn't it is it Robert Caldini talks about that he's that expert on um, on persuasion that's one of his six sort of tenets of persuasion is uh, is reciprocity um, I remember him th- there's an interesting example of that in restaurants um, based on the amount of tips that the the waiters get. And you know how quite often, well, again, in the dim and distant past, when we used to go to restaurants, you would sometimes get um, a little chocolate on, on the plate when your, when your bill comes. Well, that would apparently increase tips by, say, 7%. And if they put two chocolates on there, it would increase by, say, 10%. But if the waiter brought one chocolate, walked away, turned around and said, actually, because you've been such amazing customers, I'm going to give you a second chocolate. 28% increase in tips. <laughs> because I guess that was that sense of obligation, that sense of, um, you know, having had a kindness show to you, there's that implicit need to give back. Yeah, I love all of things like that. When I was working uh, back in the, uh, my days in the drinks industry, we work with a drinks consultant that done a lot of research into the perfect timing for table service to get your customers to stay. And there's a tipping point when you ask people when they're, they're their glasses at a certain point. If, if it's less than a quarter full, when you ask someone, people have already made the decision to go to a different bar and they'll probably be talking about it. And when you ask them, would you like another round of drinks? you're almost always going to get a no. If it's just over a quarter and up to about a third, that's the perfect point because you catch them before they make that decision to go somewhere else. And so, you know, just just noticing these visual clues about how people behave and what's going to happen next in their in their thought pattern and process can have such an influence on on on, on I guess on the bottom line of isn't that, isn't that interesting how the level of the liquid in the glass is an indication of what's going on in people's minds. That's yeah. really clever. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's yeah, that's great. I love that. So, Gary, um, just sort of looking forward now this year or maybe the next couple of years, because we, we're obviously well into 2021 now. We're hoping that things will loosen up a little bit and we'll be able to get back to having things like meals and uh, coffees and so forth. What What hopes do you have for the rest of this year and beyond? That's a good question. I, I always struggle to map out what what my future might look like. I think because it's changed so much. I think coming out of, of something so game-changing as, as a pandemic and being locked down for so long, I think I'll be happy to just be out talking to people face-to-face and 
and, and, and doing what I'm doing, you know, not from home. Um, I think really for me this year, you know, the, the, the two big goals really, I've got two really young children. And so, um, and, and I started a business last year. So those are the two big rocks for me to be a success in really is, is to be, you know, continue to be a, a good parent and, um, and, and, and to sort of instill some really good values in my children and, and to really just, I'm obsessive about, about the work that I do. Uh, and so it doesn't feel like a job. I just, I'm just really lucky that I get paid at the end of it. Mm. Um, and so, you know, there, there's some, some really exciting things that I think will be involved in, but really for me this year is just about getting back to some, some rhythm and routine that isn't dominated by, by a lockdown, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, thank you so much for your time in joining us on Leaning Forward. Um, I always learn something when I speak to you, um, not, not least the level in the glass being an indication of whether a customer is going to stay or leave. That was fascinating. But thank you for sharing all those insights with us today. And I wish you the very best of luck for the rest of this year um, and beyond um, and uh, good health and success um, in 2021. Likewise, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Andrew. Thank you and uh, success to you as well this year.